Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamat, and I'm Rahul Demania, a third-year PQ fellow. And I'm Kate Phelps, a second-year PQ fellow, coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Joining Pradeep and Rahul today. Welcome to our episode where we'll be discussing rhabdomyolysis and associated acute kidney injury in the ICU. Here's the case. A seven-year-old female presents to the emergency department with three days of fever, poor PO, and diffuse myalgia. In the emergency department, her vital signs are notable for a temperature of 39.1 centigrade, heart rate of 139, blood pressure 82 over 44, and respiratory rate of 32. She is pale and diaphoretic, complaining weekly about how much her legs hurt. Her parents note that she has not been peeing very well since yesterday. And when she does pee, it is, quote, very concentrated and almost brown. She also has been spending majority of her time on the couch and has actually asked to be carried to the bathroom when she does need to go. An IV is placed by the emergency room team and she is given a fluid bolus, acetaminophen, and initial labs are drawn before she is admitted to the pediatric ICU. Her initial labs were a CMP, CBC, RSV, and a flu swab. In the pediatric ICU, her fever is better, and her vital signs have improved. Her temp now is 37.7, heart rate is 119, blood pressure 115 over 70, and respiratory rate of 25. Her respiratory swab has just resulted positive for influenza A. Further labs are sent, including creatine kinase, or CK, coagulation studies, and a urine analysis. Labs are notable for a potassium of 3.9, bicarb of 22, BUN of 15, creatinine of 0.8, and a CK of 5,768. Her urine analysis is notable for 1 WBC, 2 RBCs, 3 plus blood, and negative nitrites and leukesterase. Interestingly, her urine microscopy did not show many RBCs. To summarize... The key elements from this case, this patient has influenza A, as evidenced by her respiratory swab as well as her clinical prodrome. She has diffuse myalgias as well as fevers, diaphoresis, and hypotension. Labs are most notable for an elevated creatinine and an elevated creatine kinase, as well as an abnormal urinalysis as highlighted by Rahul, all of which bring up a concern for rhabdomyolysis and myoglobin-induced acute kidney injury. Thanks so much for that summary, KP. Before we get into this episode, Let's create a mental framework for this episode. We will dissect our case by highlighting key history and physical components, visit a differential diagnosis, pivot to speaking about pathophysiology, and finally, speak about management. Let's transition into some history and physical exam components of this case. The classic presentation of rhabdomyolysis is myalgias muscle weakness, and tea-colored urine, all of which our patient had. Decreased urine output can also accompany due to a variety of reasons, but most notably, if the patient has myoglobin-induced acute kidney injury. In our patient, her poor appetite is also probably contributing to her decrease in urine output. Now, let's talk about red flag signs. Red flag signs or symptoms will include anuria, hypotension, and altered mental status. Now, This is rare, but may indicate severe acidemia and clinical deterioration. As we think about our case, what other disease processes might be in our differential? As we dive in a bit more, we'll come up with ways 
to differentiate between Rhabdo and other things that may give us an abnormal UA and such labs. First thing on the list is viral myositis. Inflammation in the muscles in the setting of a viral illness, which can definitely happen with influenza and other common viruses. Some other things which may cause reddish-brown urine include hematuria, hemoglobinuria, porphyria, some specific food or drugs like rifampin, beets, food coloring, and even NSAIDs such as ibuprofen. We also have to investigate a bit more to convince ourselves that our patient's AKI is due to rhabdomyolysis, as it could also be from other things such as pre-renal states, sepsis, and drugs such as NSAIDs. Yeah, let's get in a little further into rhabdomyolysis. So rhabdo affects over 25,000 adults and children every year. While toxins, including prescription drugs, alcohol, and illicit drugs, and trauma are two common causes of rhabdo in adults and teens, infections, especially viruses, are the most common cause in young children. Influenza, EBV, and CMV are three commonly reported viruses that come with rhabdomyolysis. So Kate, what's the pathophysiology of rhabdomyolysis? Rhabdomyolysis is the injury of skeletal muscle, which leads to cellular damage, apoptosis, and necrosis. As a result, skeletal muscle cells lyse and release their intracellular contents. Insult directly to the cell membrane, as well as ATP depletion, are two mechanisms that can start the chain reaction leading to cell death. When the cell membrane itself is injured, as may happen in trauma or crush injury, metabolic conditions, or with toxins, ionized calcium can freely enter the cell. This leads to an activation of proteases and phospholipidases, which further injure the cell membrane, as well as the mitochondria. As a result, the cell undergoes apoptosis and necrosis. When there is ATP depletion, pumps on the cell membrane, important for maintaining sodium and calcium homeostasis between the intracellular and extracellular components, becomes compromised. Intracellular calcium levels build, and the same process of cell and mitochondrial injuries lead to apoptosis and more necrosis. Thanks, Kate, for that review of basic sciences and a trip back to medical school. To summarize, rhabdomyolysis is an index case example of cell adaptations, injury, and death. The key here is cell membrane damage, which leads to downstream apoptosis. Yeah, so the danger of this is that other intracellular contents are released into the extracellular space, including myoglobin, potassium, uric acid, intracellular enzymes, and many other things. Creasing kinase, or CK, released from cells is relatively indicative of rhabdo. Though no consensus criteria for rhabdo exist, most experts agree that serum CK levels greater than 1,000 IU per liter combined with the history and physical findings we'll discuss is consistent with rhabdo. To summarize, this is especially important as there are a multitude of pathologies which can cause a mild transient increase in CK levels, usually less than 1,000. And Pradeep did highlight that in our differential portion of the podcast. One of the most common and dangerous complications of rhabdomyolysis is acute kidney injury or AKI. While more common in adults, AKI occurs in about approximately 5% of children with rhabdomyolysis. Let's take a brief moment to discuss rhabdomyolysis-induced, or more specifically, myoglobin-induced acute kidney injury. While mechanisms from myoglobin injury to the nephron aren't entirely clear, most experts believe one of three things, or more likely a combination of three things that which occur. Rahul, can you please walk us through those three things? Sure, I'd love to. 
First, myoglobin is directly nephrotoxic, though notably only in an acidic environment. Second, it causes oxidation of ferrous oxide, leading to free radicals and reactive oxygen species unregulated by usual intracellular processes. Third, myoglobin, though protein binding, can precipitate in the tubule, leading to obstructive nephropathy. All right, guys, that's a lot of basic science stuff. So let's take a break, step back a step and review what we just learned. Rhabdomyolysis is injury of the skeletal muscle leading to calcium influx into cells. This cascades into eventual apoptosis and necrosis. This leads to a massive release of intracellular components that upset the overall homeostasis of the intra and extracellular spaces. Myoglobin released from cells can directly injure the kidneys leading to AKI. Potassium and hydrogen proton leakage combined with AKI can lead to life-threatening hyperkalemia and acidosis. And CK is a serum measurement that can help confirm the diagnosis of rhabdo. Thanks so much for that excellent summary. Let's go into a quick fun fact. Myoglobinuria usually occurs in rhabdomyolysis, but not all rhabdomyolysis has myoglobinuria as it only spills out in urine above a certain serum concentration. Myoglobinuria can be inferred from a urine dipstick where there is moderate or large blood flow, but few or no red blood cells on microscopy. This is because the dipstick can't tell the difference between hemoglobin and myoglobin. Myoglobin is also the reason the urine turns reddish brown or even tea colored. Let's change gears and talk about management. Kate, can you tell us about the management of rhabdomyolysis? Yeah. In this patient, just like every patient that we take care of in any part of the hospital, our first step is resuscitation. Always ABCs first. So after initial fluid resuscitation and stabilization, we can begin to think about further workup and screening. Labs should include a comprehensive metabolic panel, or CMP, urinalysis with dipstick, complete blood count, and creatine kinase. Depending on the severity of clinical illness, coagulation studies can be sent as DIC is a rare complication of rhabdomyolysis, as well as sepsis, which is on our differential. In rhabdo, labs will show an elevated CK, possible hyperkalemia, acidosis, hyperphosphatemia, and hyperuricemia. If kidney injury is present, hyperkalemia is more likely, in addition to elevated creatinine. Once rhabdo is confirmed, treatment should focus on hydration, hydration, hydration. Additionally, any complications of abnormal electrolytes should be monitored for and addressed. This includes telemetry monitoring or EKG in the setting of hyperkalemia. All right. Now, remember, symptomatic hyperkalemia, as evidenced by EKG changes, include peak T waves, wide QRS complexes, absent P waves, or life-threatening arrhythmias such as ventricular fibrillation. These should all be recognized and treated immediately. A quick overview of hyperkalemia treatment. IV calcium administration will stabilize the cardiac membrane. Bicarbonate, insulin, and glucose and albuterol can quickly, but only temporarily, shift potassium into cells. K-exalates and diuretics, such as furosemide, can remove potassium from the body. So I think we need to emphasize that hydration is the most important treatment in the management of rhabdomyolysis. There is a paucity of data, but most expert consensus suggests targeting a urine output of at least 3 to 4 ml per kilo per hour, while administering two times maintenance fluids for children with rhabdo. Which fluid is the right fluid is still an area for more research. As studies have shown, conflicting data 
about the benefits of normal saline versus lactated ringer versus bicarb fluids. Normal saline without potassium can be used. Bicarbonate-containing fluids can be considered to buffer the urine on a case-by-case basis. And treatment of AKI should include avoidance of nephrotoxic medications and treatment of the underlying etiology. Renal replacement therapy should be considered for refractory fluid overload in the setting of oliguria or anuria, refractory acidosis with pH less than 7.1, and refractory or life-threatening hyperkalemia. Remember those AEIOU reasons for RRT. With resolution of the underlying cause, CK should peak in three to five days and then start to downtrend. Patients can be considered safe for discharge with return of kidney function, normalization of electrolytes, and resolution of myoglobinuria. That was a great management summary. We should note here that underlying metabolic myopathies can also cause recurrent mild rhabdomyolysis. Though these children do not usually need critical care unless the cause for exacerbation is sepsis or other potentially life-threatening illnesses. Kate, to wrap up, can you give us some takeaway points about rhabdo? Yeah. So number one take-home point, the key is hydration, hydration, hydration. This is both for the treatment and prevention of life-threatening electrolyte abnormalities and acute kidney injury in the setting of rhabdo. Take-home point number two, if present, myoglobinuria indicates rhabdo. And take-home point number three, in children, viral illnesses such as influenza A are the most common cause of rhabdomyolysis, while toxins and trauma are more common in older teens and adults. More information can be found at Rhabdomyolysis and Acute Kidney Injury. This was a great article published in July 2009 in New England Journal of Medicine, as well as a June 2020 Pediatrics in Review article entitled Pediatric Rhabdomyolysis. This concludes our episode on Rhabdomyolysis. We hope you found value in a short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kumar, my co-host Rahul Dimania, and Kate Phelps. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you. 